If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Romans chapter 11. If you don't have one with you this morning, you are free to borrow or to take, if you would like, the Pew Bible in front of you, Um, and you can find Romans chapter 11 on page 890 of that Bible. Absolutely no one likes to be rejected. It is one of the hardest things that adolescents are going to face, or really anyone faces. No one wants to be turned down by someone. No one wants to be rejected for a job. No one wants to be told that they're not good enough in some way. I know I I certainly hated rejection. I hated the threat of rejection. I hated it when I had to ask girls out. Uh, Even though I was fairly certain that my wife was going to say yes to me, it still was a difficult decision to get down on one knee and to ask her to marry me because I was fairly certain she was going to say yes. I kind of thought in the back of my head that this rejection is going to be all the worse for it. As you would imagine, it was a very romantic scene. Took my wife out, she wasn't my wife at the time, my girlfriend, out to dinner. We took a little walk. Then things get a little fuzzy for me. It wasn't because I was drinking, it's just this is how my memory works. And I I know that I got down on one knee, and I know that I, I said the words, will you marry me? But I think that I likely was saying a whole bunch of other stuff as well, because you guys know that I can't ever just get to the point. I got I gotta talk. I probably referenced a movie and talked about some philosophy or something like that. And and at some point in time, I actually took the ring out of the box. And while I was speaking to her, I began to put it on her finger before she could respond to me. And I'm not sure why I did this. I think maybe subconsciously I thought that if she gets the ring on there, that she might look at me and be like, I don't know that I want to wake up next to that the rest of my life, but the ring's pretty at least. And, and if it got stuck on there, she might be some sort of weird way contractually obligated to say yes. And so... I got down on one knee, I went through all of that. She said, I'll think about it. And uh, 19 years later, we're happily married, so it worked out well. Um, No one wants to be rejected. No one wants to be rejected by another human being. No one wants to face rejection. How much more important is it? How much worse would it be to be a people, to be a person rejected by God? By the time we get to Romans 11, the question has to be asked after Romans 9 and Romans 10, did God just wholesale reject the people of Israel? Given that the Israelites almost as a whole have rejected Jesus Christ and that to reject Jesus Christ is to reject their creator God, is to reject being known by him, has God then rejected them? Are they to be the people who would look at the Lord on the last days and say to him, Lord, Lord, and him look at them and say, I, I never knew you. Paul turns to this question here in Romans 11. If you would read with me these first 10 verses. Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant 
chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of our God. Paul takes head on the question of whether Israel has been rejected. The first thing we need to talk about this morning is simply the remnant. The first thing that Paul points out is that there is a remnant. The 10th chapter has somewhat widened the scope of what Paul wishes to talk about. He's talking about the faith that anyone can call upon the name of the Lord, and certainly he's talking about more than just Israelites and their ability to call upon the name of the Lord. But nevertheless, his purpose in writing chapters 9, 10, and 11 couldn't be more clear, and that he is trying to talk about the nation of Israel in particular and their problems with the gospel. After all, at the beginning of chapter 9, the heart of the problem was God's plan for them. Verse 6 says, the word of God failed. Did God somehow fail? After all, if salvation, this salvation, was supposed to be the culmination of Israel as a nation, of their very existence, if this was the culmination of their hope in God, their desire for the Messiah, the fulfillment of their scripture, how in the world could they have missed it so badly? Doesn't that insist that Something's wrong with Paul's gospel. Doesn't it mean that something's gone awry awry in God's plan? Did God somehow just decide to scrap what he had been working on for all those millennia and decide just to go in a different direction altogether? In chapter 9, Paul argued and insisted that God's plan cannot be thwarted because God's calling and election are sure. That is, those who... God's grace falls upon believe. They come to him. They are elected by him to salvation. So in a sense, if the Israelites didn't understand or believe the gospel, Paul would argue it's not a fault of God's plan, but a feature of God's plan. It's an extension of it. But that doesn't mean that Israel had no role to play. Israel was still at fault. They had no faith. They had no faith in their approach to the law. They didn't have faith in the goodness of God to give them salvation on his own merit and in his own time. They did not have faith in Jesus, seeing him rightly as the Lord of all creation, almighty in human flesh, sacrificed for them. They heard the word of God. They heard the preaching and the calling of repentance and faith, and they denied it. So, given that, the question that Paul asked at the beginning of chapter 11 is straightforward, and it makes sense. Is the rejection of the vast majority of Israel, a sign that God is just done with them altogether. As God cut them off, rejected them forevermore. Paul answers very clearly, by no means. And the first thing that he points to is him. He's sort of like raising his hand in the back saying, guys, I mean, I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. God couldn't possibly have cut off all the Jews if I'm the one here preaching to you and I'm the one here teaching you about the goodness of Jesus Christ. I am a Jew. I am an Israelite. I'm here by the very people of Israel. 
The very fact that Paul exists as one saved by Christ is evidence that God hasn't forsaken the entirety of Israel. In fact, we are remiss to think that Gentiles have now sort of taken over the church. We're wrong in our thinking if that's what we think. Now, by numbers, sure, but remember, even now, we open up the Word of God Almost anywhere we open it, we are fed the Word of God by the hands of Jewish men, by the hands of Israelites themselves. Paul, Matthew, James, John, Peter, Jude, all of them Jews, all of them saved for our inheritance to provide us with the very Word of God. Friends, there is absolutely no place in time for you not to be thankful for what God has done through the Israelites and to be thankful for Jews in general. They are the people of God in one sense or another. And I have to say, Christians have a really difficult time with that. Christians have somehow throughout history held grudges against Jews and, and completely and utterly without reason. The hatred of this nationality is disturbing and out of place. And yet, it goes hand in hand with the church almost wherever and whenever she's gone. If anyone had a reason to hate the Jewish people, it was Paul. Paul was silenced by them, or attempted to be silenced by them. He was beaten by them. He was stoned by them. He was whipped by them. They caused riots to shut him up and to quiet him. Everywhere he turned, they were a thorn in his side. They were a difficulty for him to overcome. And yet, Paul, in the beginning of chapter 9, prays and says, if if I could reject heaven so that they could be accepted, I would do that. And friend, I'm telling you, you think, perhaps in your mind, you know what Paul is saying there. But your imagination of the reality that he is rejecting so that his brothers and sisters might come to know the Lord pales into comparison to what he knew, being taken up into the third heaven. Paul knew better than anyone. Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as the sun in midday, Paul knew better than you what he would be giving up. You haven't loved anyone like that. And, lest we think that those are just sort of empty words that Paul wants to say, he invokes even the presence of the Spirit to support the truth of that desire. Compare that to this. Their synagogues or churches should be set on fire. And whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see cinder or stone of it. Their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. To sum up, dear princes and nobles, who have Jews in their domains, in your domains. If this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. Sure, you might think, you can find anti-Semitic crack pottery everywhere. That's not special. There are a lot of idiots out there. The difference is, this is our idiot. This is Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer of the church, the pious seeker of truth, Jew-hating Martin Luther, whose words, by the way, here, 
were used centuries later to support the very ideology of Nazi Germany. Such attitudes are not formed on the basis of the New Testament. There's no text from which these sort of vile sentiments can be found. And you might sit there and say, you can go on about this. I, I have no animosity towards Jews. I'm happy that Israel exists. And I, I, maybe I've got Jewish neighbors, maybe I don't. I, I'm not even sure, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hate them if I knew that they were Jewish. Well, friend, neither would Martin Luther, who 20 years before that, just 20 years before that, wrote to others to treat Jews differently than the Catholic churches. And he looked around and saw how Catholic priests and how the church in general treated Jews, and he said, we need to treat Jews with absolute kindness for, he said, if we treat them like dogs, what good can we expect of them? It took him two decades to go from publicly saying, we ought to seek the good of Jews, to saying, burn their homes. Do not Do not think that you are above that. Do not think that you are above hatred seeping into you. Be wary of it and fight it. It has been a a problem for Christians forever. Fight it. Because God has not rejected these, his people. Even as Paul is an example, not only in his person, but even in his desire. He wants the Jews to come to salvation because Paul still thinks there is time for the Jews. He wants us to see by the way he argues here, not only is it not the case now, but this idea of a remnant has always been present. Again, Paul's not trying to be ingenious in what he's doing. He's not trying to say, hey, there's this, this newfangled reality. He's saying this is the way it's always been. To speak of this, this line of grace, he takes us back to 1 Kings 19, where Elijah complains to God about him being the only one left. In order to understand what is actually going on in 1 Kings 19, it's important for us to go back to 1 Kings 18. If for no other reason, then it's probably one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Wicked King Ahab and his insidious queen Jezebel have been trying to eradicate the worship of Yahweh amongst the people of Israel and instead to promote the worship of Baal. So, there's a confrontation Elijah says, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go up on that mountain, and you're going to build an altar. 450 priests, all the priests of Baal are going to go up there. They're going to build an altar. They're going to sacrifice a bull. And I'm going to go up over here, and I'm going to rebuild that altar. I'm going to pack it full of wood, and I'm going to sacrifice a bull. And what we're going to do is I'm going to let them go first, and they're going to bring down Baal. They're going to say, Baal, come and sacrifice. Gain the sacrifice. Burn the sacrifice up. And I'm going to stand over here, just me, me alone. And I'll do the same. And we'll see who the God is. So they build their altar. 450 prophets start praying. Then they start yelling. Then they start jumping and whooping. Then they start cutting themselves because they they can't get Baal to act. They can't get Baal to come. All day long they do this. Elijah mocking them relentlessly the whole time. At the end, Elijah calls the people over to him. He says, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig a trench, and you're going to come dump water. I don't want you to think that this is some like spare spark that came in and lit the wood on fire. I want you to know that this is the work of God. So dump water, dump water, dump water on it. It fills up the trench. A very simple prayer that basically boils down to this. God, you are God, light it up. 
fire comes down, lights it up. It doesn't just consume the bull, consumes the wood, consumes the water. The people who are on that hill turn their attention back to the other hill, see the 450 prophets of Baal come down, go back up, and slaughter the lot of them. If there was ever a man who strutted like he was a lover of disco in the 70s, it was Elijah coming down off that hill. He was untouchable. And yet in the very next chapter, we hear the report of this incident going to Jezebel, her looking at him and saying this, if I find you, I will do that to you, Elijah. Or you will do it to me, but one way or the next, I'm cutting you down. And while he just stood up to 450 men, while he just called down fire from heaven, and God kindly was there with him to show him his favor, to show him his grace, Elijah tucks tail and runs and hides and complains. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Fairly self-indulgent and certainly exaggerated. The people had rallied to him. They had slaughtered all the priests of Baal. God had done an amazing thing in showing up for him, and yet he is still despondent at the word of one woman. God has none of it, though. Note the response. What God says to him is not, Elijah, there are 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. That's not what he says. He says, there are 7,000 people I have kept. I have kept. They may have been wanting to wander on their own and given their, their own propensities, maybe they would have wandered. Maybe they would have gone off. Maybe they would have fallen for the culture, but I kept them. I preserved them. I will keep a remnant for myself. You are not the only one left. The point that Paul is making is very straightforward. At no point in time did God ever forsake the entirety of his people. There was always a remnant. There was always a group of people that he kept for himself. From the very first generation, he brings people through the Red Sea. He shows them his power and his might up on the mountain. They then travel just a little bit north, peek into the promised land, see that the promised land is absolutely everything that God says but there are some guys up there who shop at the big and tall section, and they said, we can't take it. And Caleb looks around, and Caleb is like, we the, see the droning and the fire on the mountain, and we can do this? And they said, no, 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 we can't. There is always a remnant. There is always a Caleb and a Joshua. There's always an Elijah or a Paul. God has always kept a remnant of his people. Paul adds, how can he reject, or God has not rejected, his people whom he foreknew? That's not just that God knew that the Jews would exist, or that God knew that the Israelites would exist. He, he knew that the Amorites were going to exist as well, but the Amorites were not people that he foreknew. It's, it's using the word knowledge, not in terms of like a knowledge of facts, but a knowledge of intimacy. He was their God, they were his people. Israel can have a couple of different meanings. We've seen it already in the book of Romans. Israel can simply mean the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Israel can also indicate those who have been saved by grace through faith and the gift of God from before the foundation of the world. When Paul says that God cannot reject his people, he means that both of those promises are true. 
that God has called the physical descendants, but among those physical descendants, there will always be those who are called specially by God. It is nigh impossible for God to forget them or to abandon them. God, in order to do this, would have to go back on his word. But good news, because God is constant and immovable, because he never changes, his love placed upon a people is not thrown about by the way the wind turns and changes. He is a rock. He is sure and steady. He always keeps his love on his people. Therefore, Paul adds, they were chosen by grace. If it was something outside of God, if it was something outside of his own choice, of his own work, then, then there would be reason to fear the change. There would be reason to fear that, that he could flip in his understanding of who you are and his love being placed upon you if it was about you. If it was by your abilities that God loved you. If he chose you because you are great at that one thing. And his love may leave as that one thing tires. If it was because of your works, his love may leave as those works grow cold. If it was by your desire, your fervent desire to know and to be known by God, his love may leave as your desires waft and waves away. But because God chooses us, by his own choice, because it is by his grace and not by a thing that we do in ourselves. Because he loves you simply because he loves you. By his own immovable will, it never leaves and it never changes. What was true for Israel is true of us. And if it is by grace, if it is by God's sovereign and cho choice, it cannot be by works. And this is, again, where the Israelites failed. They thought that by doing the law, they could make God happy. They thought that doing the law would be enough to win his pleasure, but God's pleasure is freely given. His love is freely bestowed. Don't worry that you can't match up to it. His love endures forever. Don't worry that you can't keep up with it. His love endures forever. Don't worry that you will never be enough. His love endures forever. The love of God is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. It bears all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Friend, you cannot exhaust the love of God for you in Christ. Don't sully his love. Don't mock it by thinking that somehow you can earn it. The remnant always knows this, but God's calling on their lives have made it clear. But that brings us to the second point, and that is the rejected. The idea of a remnant implies that the rest are rejected. Israel, Paul says, has failed to obtain what it sought. Now, our translation says, but the elect obtained it, there's a difference between the word elect and the word election. And Paul actually uses the word election here, but it sounds goofy, so people translate it differently. But what he really says is here is the election obtained it. That is, that they sought to be right by God, but God's election is what actually obtains that for you. If God has elected you, then you obtain it by his election of you. It is election that marks you off as an object of mercy before God and their rejection by God marks them off as objects of hardening. To show this, just like how the remnant is nothing new, Paul again drives back into the Old Testament and combines a quote from two different places, importantly, from two distinct places, mashes them into one. 
One from Isaiah 29 and the other from Deuteronomy 29. The same pillars that Paul has already called forward, Moses and Isaiah. Moses in Deuteronomy 29 says this, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. The gist of that is this. You saw with your eyes. You remember, you heard the rushing sound of the water filling up over the Egyptian army. You heard the rumbles and peals of thunder. You saw the lightning on the mountain. You saw all of the works of God, but you didn't, you didn't, you didn't see them. You don't, you don't understand what it means. Isaiah repeats the very point. In Isaiah 29, we have a passage about the siege of Jerusalem, about how Jerusalem is going to fall. In Isaiah 29, 9 and 10, we read this. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, a spirit of stupor, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. The first generation, before they enter into the promised land, Moses tells them, you guys don't get it. You don't know God has kept it from you. He has blinded you. The last group to live there before they are exiled out of there, Isaiah says the same thing. You don't get it. You don't understand. The vast majority of Israel, from the first to the last, before they lived in the land and even in their living in the land, didn't get it. There was always a group of Israel, Israelites, that God had rejected from before him. The book of Hebrews talks about that first generation that God swore in his anger, they will not enter my rest. They simply don't have understanding given to them. God will not reveal what they need to know. This is all clearly God's judgment upon them. Most clear in this is the last scripture that we read from David today. It is an interesting one. It's from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is straightforward enough. David prays that God would save him from these waters. He is stuck in the mire. His feet are somehow sludged up in the bottom of this, this raging water, and it's coming ever steadily up on his neck, and he is afraid that it's going to overwhelm him. He will drown. It's not the water that he's truly worried about, but the hatred, the desires, the evil intentions of his enemies. And his enemies are nothing less than his brothers. Psalm 69.8 says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. David remarks that it is because his zeal for the house of the Lord that they have become angry with him. And even though they wag their tongues at him, even though they wish him harm, they seek his end. David prays that the Lord will not let him be put to shame. What's interesting about this 
Because whether you think that David is writing this only about himself, whether you think that David is writing this somewhat about himself, but also looking forward to Jesus, or whether you think that this is Jesus speaking through David about his own life, it is clear that the New Testament understood this as speaking about Jesus. Matthew 27 twice speaks of it this way. Mark 3, 15. Luke 13 and 23. John 2 and 15 and 19. Acts 1, Romans 15, Hebrews 11, and various sundry other passages quote Psalm 69, sometimes two different places in the same chapter as referring to Jesus, not to David. So what David is saying is that the rejection that has come upon him has actually come upon Jesus. The brothers and sisters that rejected David were the very Jews that rejected Jesus. The waters that were coming up to his neck that God saved him from would not subside for Jesus. And he would be engulfed by them only to be resurrected again for our salvation. So those who have rejected David will suffer for that rejection because those who suffer or those who reject Jesus will suffer for that rejection. He speaks here of their table. Let their table become a snare and a trap. It's hard for me not to think that this is something of fellowship and goodness that they think that they have together. The table was a place where you gathered with your people to celebrate God's goodness upon them. They thought, the Jewish people thought that they had God's blessing. They thought that they had his, his desire was upon them. They thought that they were right before them and that anyone who came in with them who followed the law like they did, could also be included, but everyone else was out. What Paul says is, if this is what you want to insist on, know this. That fellowship and that blessing that you think you have from God, because you think you are right with him, it's going to be a snare, and it's going to entrap you, and it will lead to your destruction. The full judgment comes. Their eyes will be dark, and they will never see the truth. Their backs will be bent so that they will feel the weight of their sin upon them always. There will be no relief, and there will be no rest. Those are difficult words. I, I honestly don't know how to achieve any semblance of a balance that Paul has here. You might look at these words and say, well, it seems like what Paul is saying that David is saying, or what Paul is implying by quoting David is, in the end people are going to be rejected by God, and when that happens, if they reject the gospel all the way through their lives, they will face judgment, and there, there bring the penalty upon them. There, let their eyes be darkened. But I just, I, I can't see it that way. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Sounds so much like a penalty that is given to them so that they won't respond to the truth. This was part and parcel of Isaiah's even goal in preaching that God gave to him. After that famous passage, holy, 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 Isaiah has his lips cleansed by that coal. God says, who will go for me? Isaiah stands up and says, I will go. And he says, go and harden them. His whole ministry was to harden the people of Israel to make it so that they couldn't see and they couldn't hear. Paul has a balance here. He somehow is able to speak of these people 
with love and kindness and compassion, wanting them to come to know the Lord. And at the same time, understands that the rejection of Jesus means that they ought to be damned forever, and he doesn't feel bad about it. Many would argue that we really shouldn't think like that. We, we should always just take the gospel to people. We should always put it before them. God, even the steeliest of hearts, God can melt with a look. So we just, we keep praying for people. We keep putting the gospel before them. We keep taking the gospel to them. And I, I understand that. I, I agree. Our, our theology lends itself to that really well because we do believe that God is the one that can change a heart. If you think that man is the one who has to make himself right, then it's easy to look at somebody who has gone through decades of their lives being wholly resistant to the things of God and saying there is no chance for him. But if you think that God can come down in an instant and switch him, then there's no reason to not do that. But man, there's a plenty of places in the New Testament that seem to indicate that that's not how we should act. Jesus tells us not to throw our pearls before swine so they don't trample on them. He tells his disciples to go into cities. If they reject you there, you shake the dust off of you, meaning I'm done with you. Your your fault is your fault, I tried. Paul himself leaves places and people when the response to the gospel was not positive. Certainly, he didn't meet every single person in those cities. More than that, you go to the book of Revelation, and you find the people of God cheering for the destruction of Babylon. Not the destruction of people in hell already, the destruction of people who are alive on the world when the destruction falls on them. How do we handle these things? How can we pray for salvation, love people into salvation, want them to know our God, and at the same time, understand that there is a limit that we have to come to, and then we say, hey, no more. I don't know. A lot of us, I'm one of them, want methods or sort of mathematical precision to these things, and we just, we just don't have it here. But I am sure of one thing. I am sure of this. Many people, when they read those passages in Revelation or in 1 Thessalonians or even Paul here, speaking of how reticent people are to be treated and preaching and teaching about the coming judgment of God being upon them and how it's worthy. We have Jude saying their condemnation was from long ago and they are ready for it. It's good that God does this. You had better be certain that if you desire to say that about someone or something, it is because they have slighted Jesus and not because they've slighted you. Because far too often, the problem that people have with others isn't what they say of Jesus. It is how they've treated them. It's not because people reject Jesus and he is worthy of honor and glory and, and magnificent worship because he is worthy of their time and attention. The vast majority of the time when I hear people talk like this, it sounds sinisterly like what they really care about is the slight that they have felt at the hands of these people. And that won't stand. 
The main emphasis in every single scene of judgment, even when the people of God cry out, under the throne in Revelation 6, when will you avenge our blood? Is not so much that the, the saints themselves need avenging, but the saints themselves carried the name and the mark of Jesus Christ. When will you avenge him? When will you show him to be true and worthy? When our faith will make us more than conquerors because it was true and right the whole time. When will you show that? Although Paul loved the Jews fervently, it comes down to this. He loved Jesus more. Although he prayed for their salvation, wanting even to be separated from that salvation, if he could be, sort of as his own little substitute for them. He loved Jesus more. So the only advice I have for you is love your enemies, but love Jesus more. In the end, this text is pointed somewhat more at Jewish people than at us. Nevertheless, there is a good deal that we can learn from and a good deal for us to focus on. The very thing that makes it impossible for God to reject Israel is indeed the very thing that makes it impossible for him to reject us. His love is immovable. It's based on him alone, his own choice. His grace is sure for you because it's based on him alone. His salvation is certain because it's based on him alone. His word is truth because it's based on him alone. So trust him. Trust that Jesus gave his life for you. That he died for your sin and was resurrected for your good. In good times, when the world seems right and good, the sun is out, the flowers are blooming, do not forsake the one from whom all good things flow. In bad times, when all is dark and veiled, do not reject the one through whom all light comes. If you can count on anything, it's this. God is true to his word. You can trust him, and he will deliver you. You can go to him full of confidence, never fearing rejection, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His love has been made clear for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. We finish with the words of the psalmist this morning. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Will you pray with me? Our God, who is our fortress and shield, the one in whom we delight, we are called by your name and your grace. This is none of our doing. It is from your good hand and by your abundant mercy. Yet we recognize that many are not in you. Those who would desire the slavery of sin away from your presence, who desire selfish promotion and dangerous pleasures in the world, many of these are enemies of your church and of the cross who dare to stand in her way, to push her aside, to cause her harm and distress. We would pray that you would bring these to a place of contrition and understanding. Let them know the truth of the power and beauty of your kingdom. And if they persist in their sin, may your justice flow as a river from the presence of your throne. 
May justice be done and may it be seen to be from the hand of our God. Give us love where we have none. Humility to keep us near you and right desires for our time in the world. We ask these things for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.